0: Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host, and today we'll take a look at weather. And yes, I think summer's around the corner. We'll have an update on the sorority house in Laramie, Wyoming, and we'll look at the boarding schools on the Wind River Indian Reservation and across the country. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy the show. going look at Wyoming weather here today on the 26th day of April. The month is just about over. Our winter weather, we haven't had much here in northern Wyoming. We've just had a few clouds. Every time we have anything predicted, doesn't seem to get much moisture. We're probably going to be looking at a need for some moisture here before long. But uh, just made a trip down to the southern part, through the southern part of the Wyoming, I should say. I cannot believe from south pass on in that country, the amount of snow, snow drifts are just unbelievable down there. They have a long ways to go before they're going to be uh, rid of all that snow. I imagine there's going to be a little bit of flooding down there. A lot of water standing in a lot of places and a lot of dead animals along the road. A lot of roadkill. I saw bald eagles and a lot of animals out Getting a meal off these dead animals, but they're just everywhere. And I did see the Game and Fish has restricted the the shed hunting, which is a big sport, I guess you would call it here in the state of Wyoming and around the Rocky Mountain region. They are limiting those areas. They're going to restrict stuff until the fifteenth of May. I think they're trying to get these conditions and the roads and and animals and everything else taken care of down there. But it's unbelievable the amount of snow. So they have a long ways to go. But here in Wyoming, looks like some warmer temperatures. And here before, now that we're getting into May on Monday, uh, warmer temperatures are coming. And before you know it, we're going to be crying for rain. But that's what we do here in Wyoming. I guess we're never happy. Today in our potpourri section, just want to give some updates we talked about last week. We were talking about some issues. We talked about Riley Gaines, and we were talking about the sorority house in Laramie. and just wanted to bring the newest that I have. they Where we left off last week was that the seven young ladies that were bringing the suit were, and in this case it was against allowing this transgender person into their sorority. and they were being forced to bring their names forward. Well, six of the young ladies did go ahead and and make that commitment, brought their names forward. And one, one of them did drop out, kind of what we talked about, knocked off one person there. That's what the whole idea of this cancel culture is. But the six young ladies, they were really brave. They've gone forward, really stand behind these young ladies. And I did see Cowboy State Daily had released their names and even put their pictures in the paper. So on the, in the online edition. So kind of, like you said, want to shine a light on them. And it's just kind of disheartening. I know these young ladies are probably having some tough times right now. But I hope people will be out there to support them. What they're standing up for. That we can stand up. You can stand up to people. If whatever you feel like isn't right. We have the right in this country to stand up for what we believe in. That's what we were founded on. So. Hats off to those six young ladies at Kappa Kappa Gamma in Laramie, Wyoming. And we definitely, I know if you did a poll here in the state of Wyoming, I would have a pretty good idea that you'd have a landslide of support. And so all you young ladies stand in there. The people of Wyoming are behind you. We believe in being able to speak your peace in this state. And we feel like what you're doing, you believe in. And we're behind you 100%. Continuing in our history section, today we're going to be looking at an article from wildhistory.org from Wind River to Carlisle, Indian Boarding Schools in Wyoming and the Nation. And this is by Jeffrey O'Gara. Sharpnose was a sub-chief of the northern Arapaho tribes during the tumultuous period after the Indian Wars in the late 19th century when the subdued tribes were pushed onto reservations. In the 1870s, the northern Arapaho were supposed to transform instantly from hunters to farmers in the long wintered mountains and foothills of what now is the Wind River Indian Reservation, surrounded by newly carved Wyoming territory. They were supposed to share resources with a tribe from a different culture route whom they had recently fought against, the Eastern Shoshone and the supplies promised by the federal government in fulfillment of the treaties, both the tools to farm and the food to feed children were sparse or non-existent. Though Sharpnose had been a respected warrior, he was not very good in his actual defeat. The attempt, like many tribal leaders, to ensure the survival of his people. To this end, he allowed his son, Little Chief, to be taken by train to a boarding school in a faraway Pennsylvania to learn how to do as white men do. Because, he put it to an Indian agent, there are not enough good men to show us how to plant and cultivate our crops. In a dictated letter to Richard Henry Pratt, the U.S. Army veteran of the Indian Wars who founded the school, Sharp Nose wrote, we give our children to the government to do as they think best in teaching them the right way, hoping that the officers will, after a while, permit us to go and see them. But Sharpnose would never see Little Chief again. The boy died in an infirmary at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in 1883 and was buried on the school grounds. Sharpnose was in Yellowstone guiding another chief, President Chester Arthur, on a fishing trip in the primitive park. In his tent, Sharpnose cut off his long braids, a traditional sign of mourning. President Arthur would return east, but Sharpnose had no means to travel and to retrieve his son's body. The children who died at Carlisle were buried in graves located near what is now called the Jim Thorpe Fitness Center, named after a graduate of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School who became a fabed, fabled football and Olympic athlete. The school was built on a military outpost that dated back to the American Revolution, and the boys at Carlisle some of whom had accompanied their fathers during battles against U.S. Army, were dressed in Army-style uniforms. On the way to play sports at Carlisle, they would have had a view of the cemetery of their peers. Today, the Carlisle Barracks, as it is called, is the U.S. Army's War College campus, and on guided tours there is little mention of the boarding school era, except Thorpe, its most famous graduate. In 1927, the cemetery was moved to a less central location, a move that may have resulted in some careless scrambling of bones and grave markers, as in northern Arapaho we discover in 2017. There is little mention of Indian boarding schools in American history books, though there were hundreds of them a century ago. Many were located on reservations and were run by the religious orders, subsidized by federal funds. Others were intentionally built far from tribal lands, following the model of Carlisle to separate kids from the isolation of the reservations and from what school founders saw as the corrupting influence of traditional culture. At the time, Sharpnose sent his son to Carlisle. There was no boarding or day schools on the reservation, but that would soon change. In 1883, Episcopal Minister John Roberts arrived at Wind River and with a government Indian agent's approval, began teaching children in his one-room cabin on Trout Creek, where the boarding of children slept on the rug. Jesuits arrived a few years later, and when they found Roberts entrenched on the west side of the reservation, they built their mission and school at St. Stephen's on the east side. In 1892, a government school went up near Fort Washke, nicknamed Gravy high, because of a staple food service in the dining hall, the government school was more severe in its methods. Students were beaten for speaking their native languages, and military drills were part of the curriculum. But the religious schools also sought to reshape the tribe's children in the way of white society. Education as a tool to assimilate in- indigenous people into society that conquered them is as old as colonization and compared to slavery and other methods of subjugation, suggesting a more benign intent. There were practical reasons as well. After the Civil War ended, the exhausted army found itself pulled west into a prolonged war against scattered Indian tribes. It was expensive. Civil War general and senator from Missouri, Carl Schultz, calculated that the geographical distending war against the Indians cost the country $1 million per Indian killed whereas it costs $1,200 to school an Indian for eight years and presumably civilize him. Many of those who decried the erasure of the Native Americans, whose numbers in North America plummeted more than 5 million when Columbus arrived to fewer than 250,000 in the 19th century, saw education as a way to save Indians by remaking them in the image of their conquerors. As early as the 16th century, Jesuit missionaries began schooling Indian children in Florida, and later in the 19th century, the federal government would divvy up reservations among denominations and help fund their parochial schools with something called the Civilization Fund. That brought the Episcopalian Roberts' mission to Wind River and the Catholic St. Stephen's. The aim was the same. By various methods and in various locations, schools would be a weapon too in the world of Carlisle founder... Robert Henry Pratt, killed the Indian M.M. and saved the man. Carlisle, the boarding school where Little Chief and other northern Arapaho and eastern Shoshone children were sent, along with children from as many as 150 other tribes set the standard for Indian boarding schools. Life was highly regimented. Children who arrived in their finest traditional clothing, often bearing pipes and other gifts, were stripped of their tribal possessions, and their hair was cut very short. Their days were divided between academic classes, intensive English classes were when they arrived, and then math, psychology, geology, and U.S. history, and a half day working at a trade school, such as carpentry and agriculture. The children also lived and worked for periods with white families in surrounding communities on outings for them to experience a non Indian family and workplace, but sometimes merely providing their hosts inexpensive farm and domestic labor. Pratt was a complicated figure. His experience on the frontier working with the Black Army units and the Indian scouts had convinced him of the intelligence and ability of people of color. At the same time, he was critical of tribal life and the reservations and argued that only by separating children from their families and tribes Could they be molded into successful American citizens, weaned of a communal tribalism and converted to individualism, work ethic, and patriotism? If Carlisle graduation rates are of any indication, the experiment failed. By 1909, 4,151 students had been to Carlisle, but only 532 had graduated. Pratt, whose confidence in his own ideas never wavered, would say that a diploma wasn't as important as the skills they now had to navigate the modern world. But many students, Little Chief, Horse, and Little Plume from the northern Arapos among them, would never make it out of Carlisle. They would die there, of diseases like tuberculosis, measles, and influenza. In 1881, the Superintendent of Indian Education reported that 49 students brought to Carlisle in its first year, 10 had died. That figure may have been under- Stated, the problem, chronically ill students were often sent home so their deaths did not show up on Carlisle's records. Their children were much more vulnerable to all the European diseases, just as the native people had been down the centuries, said Dr. Jackie Fears-Siegel, a professor at the University of East Angela. They were also in a completely different climate, and they were surrounded by a different environment. And we know now that anybody who is suffering emotional issues, their immune system is also compromised. Students were dying at the boarding school on the reservation too, and Reverend John Roberts, noting the heavy death rate of pupils at the Wind River government schools, asked the government to let the children have more time with their families. He noted that despite good food and exercise, in school they droop and die, while their brothers and sisters in camp live and thrive. Roberts corresponded with Pratt, trying to convince him that the Indian children would do better if schooled closer to home. Pratt, always blind to fault in his own vision, blamed the unhealthy conditions of the children sent from the Wind River Reservation, but it was becoming clearer that the boarding school experiment in its earlier form was not succeeding. Estelle Reel, who had been Wyoming's superintendent of public instruction, became the national superintendent of Indian education in 1898 in charge of government Indian schools nationwide. Reel was a hard worker who traveled extensively among reservations and met with tribal leaders all over the country. But she took office with little respect for the Indian children's academic prospects, and she issued a massive course of study for Indian schools in 1901 that stirred instruction at the boarding schools towards practical learning, like agriculture and manual tasks. Her expectations for them, leaning very, very low said Michelle Hoffman, a Wyoming education consultant and former superintendent at Wyoming Indian Schools. They could weave baskets and do artwork, but not the book type of education. That view of Indians and Pratt's approach to civilizing them would hold for another 30 years in the federal programs for Indian education. Pratt would lose his job and Carlisle would close in 1913, but other boarding schools, Haskell in Kansas and the Phoenix Indian School Kemawah in Oregon, among them, would continue. Then in 1928, the Rockefeller Foundation funded a study that became known as the Marion Report, which exposed the dire conditions on reservations and the inadequacy of federal Indian programs, including the boarding schools. In nearly every boarding school, one would find children of 10, 11, and 12 spending four hours a day in more or less heavy industrial work. The work is bad for children for this age. And especially children not physically well nourished, most of it made no sense for educational purposes. At present, the half-day plan is felt to be necessary, not because it can be defended on health or educational grounds, for it cannot, but because the small amount of money allowed for the food and clothes makes it necessary to use child labor. After the Marion Report, the federal government approached to providing education for Indians a responsibility written into treaties. With the tribes, changed for the better. The military models were discarded, day schools were supported, primers in the English and native language were written, and tribal cultural activities were included or encouraged on campuses. But Indian education, like Indian programs generally, were chronically underfunded, facilities were often in poor shape, and the caliber of teaching was often subpar. In 1969, a Senate Special Subcommittee on Indian Education summed up its 4,500 page of testimony and research in its simplest title, Indian Education, a National Tragedy, a National Challenge. Boarding schools on or off the reservation have been closing their doors, not just because of their poor reputation, but because of improved roads and community growth gave reservation residents better access to local public schools. The boarding schools on the Wind River Indian Reservation were among the longest surviving. St. Stephen's stopped boarding kids in 1939. Roberts School for Girls closed in 1949, and the Government Boarding School shut its doors in 1955. Off-reservation schools dwindled as well, but a number survived, including Chermois in Oregon, Haskell in Kansas, it's now a college, and Sherman Indian School in Riverside, California. In many reservation families, successive generations had availed themselves of parochial or government boarding school, though younger family members say that their grandparents rarely talked about their experience. The option comes up, though, when a child has a problem or isn't performing well. In junior high, I wasn't making good decisions for myself, recalls Millie Friday, who runs the White Buffalo Youth Prevention Program at Ethity on the Wind River Indian Reservation. So my dad just told me. He said, you can go to Lander Valley High School or you can go off to a boarding school. I chose boarding school. The boarding schools of today are a far cry from Carlisle, though they still suffer from chronic underfunding. Recent interviews with Wind River Youth at Sherman Indian School in Riverside, California revealed a variety of reasons for their being there. Some wanted a fresh start after getting in trouble on the reservation. Some had lost parents, or others had other family problems. Some wanted a change closer to a big city like Los Angeles, and some thought the school gave them a better shot at college. The Sherman campus is a sprawling fence enclave with abundant athletic fields and some striking artwork by students decorating the walls and grounds. There is a weekly powwow, regular sweats, and native language instruction, as well as college counseling, and a robust vocational program with hyponic gardening, and industrial arts, but the budgetary problems depressed teachers' pay, curtail mental health, counseling, and hamstring courses offering the only native language taught is Dine, the native, the Navajo tongue, despite dozens of tribes represented in the suiting body. One Wind River boy, about to graduate after spending only a senior year at Sherman, struggled to describe his loneliness during a recent interview, but stood by his decision to board. I was moving with some bad influencers. Back home, he said, and then smiled shyly when asked how his grandparents would feel when they came to his graduation. Soon he returned to the reservation, intent on following a better path. A Bureau of Indian Education official monitoring the interview came up to him afterwards and offered to write college letters of recommendation. His grandparents and other older reservation residents know of the darker experiences of their predecessors at boarding schools and the emotional remoteness that they inherited. There is a debate in Native American communities about whether the boarding school legacy has left scars deep in the DNA. Groups like the Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition have campaigned for truth and reconciliation efforts in the United States to acknowledge the historical trauma of the boarding school errors. In 2017, elders and youth from the Wind River Indian Reservation, including relatives of Horse, Little Plume, and Little Chief, traveled to the Carlisle Barracks. Yufna Solderwolf, a sharp-nosed ascendant, had led a persistent campaign by the Northern Arapaho Tribal Historical Preservation Office to bring the remains of boys home. After years of resistance, the U.S. Army relented. Nelson White, one of the elders who traveled to Carlisle, said the decision to move them was fraught. But their spirits were still there roaming around looking for help. So this is why we took them home. So this is the way I take it. We're here with these children. They're still roaming around. With all this noise, I think it would be better for them to be back home. And when hundreds of tribal members gathered as riderless horses brought the boys to the resting place at Wind River, White was thinking of an awakening for contemporary youngsters. Maybe we can use this here as a light being turned on. Maybe the kids will listen to us, help us along, get our language back and our secret ceremonies. Just an outstanding story talking about the plight of the Indians and these young kids that have faced a lot of years of obstacles and a difficult time. And I think it's, as I've said before, I think it's something in our past that will be with us forever on how we handled everything. There are people with different opinions. And I think it's just something that we have to remember and not do again. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed our show. As per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming here at Let's Talk Wyoming, your Everything Wyoming podcast.